0: Everything you want is on the other side of cringe. The first time that I started to share social media videos, you know, they felt so cringy, And I just remember not wanting to do it. I had so much self-doubt.
1: Do you ever feel like the person most getting in your way is you? Do you have an inner voice that whispers, you can't do it? Welcome to Tiger Therapy. My name's Pippa Woodhead and I am no therapist, but I know firsthand that the big bad walls of career dreams are self-doubt and limiting beliefs. For the past few years, I've been interviewing business leaders about work and I have felt like an imposter for, well, a lot of these conversations. Each week, I'll be speaking to someone brilliant who's achieved success on their own terms. Join me as we hear about their life, their career journey, and find out what role, if any, self-doubt and limiting beliefs have played a part in their story. I don't know about you, but I'm sick of holding myself back. A key thing I'm learning is no matter where you come from, you get to choose your mindset. So lay back on the Tiger Therapy couch and let's meet today's guest. My guest today is an entrepreneur, author, and... I guess, professional party thrower? If you've listened to this podcast before, then you may know that I end each episode asking my guest if they can nominate someone to come on this podcast, someone they think would have a really interesting perspective on self-doubt and limiting beliefs. My first ever guest on Tiger Therapy was best-selling author and world-famous productivity expert Nir Ial, and Nir suggested Nick Gray, today's guest. Here's what Nier had to say.
0: There's a good friend of mine who wrote a fantastic book called The Two Hour Cocktail Party. It deals with such an important issue. It deals with this loneliness epidemic that we see that people are increasingly saying they have fewer friends. We know that this is a a huge problem. And what Nick has done is he's researched how to reconnect with people by having these easy to throw cocktail parties. And he gives you a, a recipe guide for how to do that
1: In addition to writing a book and growing a business out of throwing fabulous cocktail parties, a few years ago, Nick started a company called Museum Hack after he spent his life thinking he hated museums and then suddenly fell in love with them. He grew Museum Hack into a multi-million dollar business, and it also landed a spot in the Inc. 5000 list as one of the fastest growing private companies in America. I had such a fun conversation with Nick. I really hope you enjoy listening. Okay, Nick, museum hack. Can you take us into your life at this moment where you were like, I'm going to start a museum tour company?
0: It's funny because I never thought that I would make it a business. It was just a hobby. And it was something that I did for fun, for free, for my friends. And I think that's why it was a little bit successful, that I didn't have any museum background. I didn't have anything like that. And I did it purely to make something that I'd be so proud of that I would want all my friends to come and enjoy and experience. When I made it into a business, though, it was because it was just, I needed to hire people to help me out. And it was a little bit more than I could manage. So that for me was like the moment when it turned into a business.
1: So it became so popular, you needed to hire people.
0: (laughs) I think so. I needed to grow to reach more people. And it's just, it's a tour business. It's a services business, right? It's not software that could easily scale. It was a services business. And that's when I knew Like, I'm holding it back.
1: Mm. You know, one thing that you said in your TED Talk in relation to Museum Hack that I just wanted to tell you that I thought was brilliant and also let you know I'm going to steal it and pass this line off as my own. You said today's audiences have to be entertained before they can be educated. I think this is true of so many things, not just museums. It's really relevant for my work, too.
0: It's true, right? People today, you have to get their hook. Have you been doing short form video at all? I worked with this firm and, oh, my, they really get me into the mindset of what is your hook, your hook, your hook? Yeah. What's that three-second sound bite, maybe even one and a half second to get people to stop scrolling? Mm-hmm. And so that is the idea, right? We have to capture them. We have to engage them. And then you can do a little bit of education.
1: Yeah. You know, I read something the other day. It was something that Chris Anderson, founder of TED, had said. And that was that being unable to tell stories is a huge career and business opportunity cost for entrepreneurs, founders, and business leaders. And we see it on podcasts at Tiger Hall all the time. If people come and they share a load of theory, they're going to lose the listeners so fast.
0: Sometimes that happens with me when I'm speaking. By the way, a ultimate pro tip, I've gotten to attend a lot of conferences, and I'm surprised, I go to so many conferences, how few speakers ask for feedback. Hmm. that there is such an opportunity to get amazing feedback from other speakers. And some of the best advice I've ever gotten is from the other speakers. Some of the best advice on being a better speaker is when I'm at these conferences and I tell people, hey, I'm still working on my talk. Like, do you mind? You're here. You have to listen to this. You're at the conference. We just write notes, anything that I could kind of punch up my own story or make it a little better on. And I've gotten some really, really good tips on that. But one thing that somebody told me recently was he said, oh, my God, Amazing talk, but you do get mirrored down in the details a little bit on how to host events, and you get into the logistics, and you could do a little bit better to add some stories or funny blips at those moments. Mm. Good feedback.
1: Yeah. So if you had to give someone one pro tip for speaking, apart from keeping it simple, what would it be?
0: When I gave my first TEDx talk, which was so funny, by the way, when I gave that, I was so nervous beforehand. I think I was having what I now would identify as like a panic attack or like anxiety (laughs) beforehand. And I was just like freaking out. Thankfully, one of my museum guides was there with me and was like, okay, let's just meditate and let's just like chill, take some deep breaths. But I think I gave a good talk. And the reason I did was because I had practiced this and given it so many times. And so I often tell people that if you're giving a talk and that's the first time that you've run through your slides, you're doing something wrong. You need to be giving this to your friends, your family, your neighbors so much that they're like, okay, enough with your talk. This is the third time we've seen it. Like, no <laughs> more, please. And so that that's something that I think not enough people do is practice amongst groups of people to give their talks.
1: Was that the TEDx talk when you talked about museum hack?
0: Yes. Yes. Oh, you
1: couldn't tell. Oh, you did it, you did an awesome job.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much. I was nervous before and it was a big big stadium
1: yeah yeah I can imagine so one thing I wanted to ask you with regard to you turning museum hack into a business that ultimately did very well is that entrepreneurship can be a path that is fraught with self-doubt right was this something that came up a lot
0: the first time I ever charged for my tickets for my tour because remember I was doing this for fun for free yeah and this was this Weird business, right, where I'm giving these non-traditional museum tours. It was a very much underground thing. And the first time I ever charged, I was losing sleep. I couldn't sleep. This woman was trying to get me to list my tour for sale on her event platform. And I was like, I couldn't sleep. I was so nervous. I was like, this is going to change everything. Literally, it was a whole week for me of just wrestling with it. And then the funny thing is that when I actually charged for the tours, we had less cancellations. People took me way more seriously. They appreciated and respected the experience so much more. And so in hindsight, it wasn't something I needed to get worked up about. But oh, in that moment, I had so much self-doubt.
1: Gosh, I mean, it's such a dream for so many people to start a company based on a passion. And then within a few short years, sell it for seven figures. Like it's literally the dream. Could you talk to us about this time when you're getting to the point where you're selling it and the thought process behind selling it?
0: This was a business that I loved and was a part of me, right? It was the majority of my adult life almost. And I never thought I would sell it, but I sold it in a weird way to the then CEO and marketing director. And they came to me with an offer to basically buy me out of my own business. I had 100% of it, so it was a very strange idea to sell some of it. And I wrestled with that. I was nervous about that. That was something that I really had to think about and my identity being wrapped up in it and giving it over to somebody else. The way that it worked with a seller finance transaction was that they had to put zero money down and they would get the whole business right then, but they would pay me back slowly over time. And if they missed some of those payments, then the business would roll back to me. But in that time, they could demolish or destroy the business. Now, we knew that that wouldn't happen. I trust them very much. And it was in their best interest to make it succeed. But yeah, that was scary. That was an interesting journey. And even that, oh, my God, the negotiation of talking with these two very close people and we're both going back and forth, that was intense.
1: Yeah. it's like your baby, as you said, you've spent almost your entire adult life building this thing. Did you have an identity crisis after you sold it?
0: I think so. A little bit. I remember when we sold our family business, that was like the first business I was involved in in my twenties. And it was so weird to sell that because we went from having 70 or 80 employees and being the center of attention, everybody wanting and needing you and there being fires to put out to, you know, it was a clean sale. So we got to walk away the moment that the transaction completed to literally the next day being like, what do we do now? Like, this is so weird. So there is some weirdness. But look, I'm not complaining at all. These are problems of privilege. These are nice problems to have.
1: Yeah, it's still always an emotional ride. And it's always quite interesting, I find, to, to look under the hood a little bit. So let's move on to your brilliant book, The Two-Hour Cocktail Party. What gave you the idea?
0: Look, I am biased. I'm going to try to convince your listeners to host a party. And I'm going to try <laughs> to convince you to host a party. That's all that I do. If you start asking me about it, I cannot help but try to get you to host an event.
1: So I've read the book. I'm already sold.
0: Yes, yes. Okay, great. <laughs> I can't wait to come to your event. I'm going to come. It's a good excuse to come back to Singapore. So, yeah, I hosted lots of events, hundreds of events. And I started hosting because I was so ticked off at how bad networking events were, or at least how bad my experience was. I moved to New York City in my mid-20s with the idea to meet people and make friends and build a network. And I would go to these events, so-called networking events, that frankly were terrible. They were just so bad. And I would leave feeling like a loser, like not having met people or meeting just like the wrong kind of people that I didn't want to talk to again. And I was so mad. I was so frustrated. And I would be like, dang, like, I'm the problem. What's wrong with me? Why can't I get this right? And I actually figured out, I was like, oh, I think I'm not the problem. I think the events are the problem. And I think if I just learn to host a better event, then I'll be more successful. And that's what I started to do. I started to play around with hosting my own events that were better suited to meet new people, and that's really what all my events are about—is getting all the guests to meet as many people as they can and have new conversations. And then I just experimented for like years and years of hosting hundreds of different types of events, and I wrote down everything I learned into a Google Doc that got passed amongst friends, and that's where my book came out of.
1: So, in terms of the benefits of networking, I mean, we all we all know about the benefits of networking. It's something that that we're being told about all the time. But one thing you mentioned in your book, which I I thought was really interesting, there was a a sociologist study, which was in regard to weak ties. Could you tell us about that?
0: The idea of loose ties or weak connections Mm. is that some of the biggest, best things that come out of our lives don't necessarily come from our best friends, but from these loose connections, these people that we kind of barely know. And that means that, let's say, the five people you spend the most time with, of course, they invite you to nice things and you hear about maybe business-related stuff through them. But your wider network of these loose connections, that could be a random person on LinkedIn you met three years ago. It could be someone, an old colleague you worked with five years ago. It could be an old school buddy. We hear about these things through that wider network. And just by nature of numbers, that is a much wider network of opportunity. And so I'm really obsessed with helping people to not just grow that network, but to warm it up a little bit to help you get those new introductions, opportunities, relationships through a wider network of what some may just call acquaintances.
1: Hmm. So when you're advising people who are going to host their first Nick Gray style cocktail party, what are the first things they should be thinking about?
0: First thing to think about is that I guess I should say mentally to know or to imagine how your life could be better if you had a full social calendar, if people were inviting you to things, if people were naturally introducing you to new people in town and people that they thought you had to meet. The first thing is the mindset of what would your life be like if that was how you lived? If people were constantly saying to you like, oh my gosh, Pippa, you have to meet so-and-so. They're new to town. They're so cool. That is really the life that you can have when you start to host events. And so knowing that, you then want to think about making your first gathering so easy. And by the way, this doesn't just have to be for networking. In fact, I would never call it a networking event. The secret is, you know, you can host the best networking event in the world as long as you don't call it a networking event. (laughs) But many people are using this to meet their neighbors, to meet the parents at their kid's school, to just mix and mingle in town not for purely networking purposes. But my general advice is your first one, do not try to reach from the top shelf. And so, for example, we're both friends with this famous author whose name is Near. And if I was hosting a first party, I would not want to invite like some famous person that I was trying to connect with or reach out to. I would only invite those people that I feel safe and comfortable and I know that I would have fun with. Your first party, you want it to be a low stakes affair, low stress to just practice. Because hosting as a muscle, you can get good at it, but you have to work out. You have to slowly build up that skill.
1: Quick interruption. Just to let you know, this podcast is brought to you by Tiger Hall, the knowledge infrastructure for Fortune 500 firms. Just as I am now, for Tiger Hall, I interview global top business executives and industry experts on topics that help employees and organizations drive change and get ahead. If you're an executive driving large transformational change across your organization, we could help you get that done much faster through the power of knowledge sharing in the flow of work. Check us out at TigerHall.com. So when you're approaching people, it's sort of like, hey, so I'm hosting a, a cocktail party, hoping to bring together a few people I know. How are you phrasing the invitations? How are you phrasing the, the point of the event?
0: There's two different groups that I invite to my parties, and I advise everybody do this. Number one is what I call your core group. And your core group are your close friends, your neighbors, maybe people you work with. They're people that you know and have a relationship already, and you need five of those people to say yes to your date and time. So the way that I message to them is different from the other people. So for my core group, I would send them a text message or a DM or a a WhatsApp, and I would say, hey... I'm thinking about hosting a happy hour on February 12th from 6 to 8 p.m. If I do it, would you come? And I'm specifically asking them. I'm not being afraid to be direct to say, if I do it, would you come? Because I want to get five of them to say yes. So I know that if nobody else shows up, at least five of my friends are there and it'll be a good time. Mm. So that's how I message the core group. Then the next group is what I call your great guests. And by the way, you need to invite a lot of people because you really want to have a minimum of like 16 people who attend your party. So most people have to invite more than that to get that number. Yeah. For that larger group of great guests, I would say something like, let's say I was inviting a woman named Diane. I'd say, hey, Diane, I've met all these interesting people in Texas, and now I want to host a happy hour to bring them together. Um, I'm inviting a group of people with different backgrounds, but I'd love to introduce you to some of my friends. It's on February 12th from 6 to 8pm, may I send you some more info about it? And that's a soft ask. It's saying, may I send you some more info, not do you want to come? Because we're not urging her to get a commitment. But then if she says yes, then I send her more information, I ask her to RSVP. That's a very lightweight way to invite someone that you know less well to your event.
1: And your recommendation is that you host these at your home?
0: I do recommend that you host it at your home. And for many people, it's a non-starter. So I do have alternate ideas if yeah. that doesn't work for your audience. But I do think it's really important for 96% of people I talk to, hosting it at home is the best bet. And here's why. It is so vulnerable and you turbocharge the relationships when you bring someone into your home. It is a very intimate experience and it makes it feel much different than a typical bar meetup where it's very transactional and it, it feels business and corporate-y.
1: Yeah. So if you can't do it at your home, <laughs> when I was reading the book, I was like, what if you live in a dump? Like, you've been too embarrassed to ask people. Or if you live really far out of the city center or, or whatever. So you recommend rather than a bar, it's finding a, a sort of quiet space, like a like a private dining room, I think you said.
0: Well, the number one thing I recommend these days right now is a hotel lobby bar. Hmm, Hotel lobby bars do tend to work. They're much more quieter. They're much larger. They're much less trafficked often. And they're very receptive to a group of individuals sort of showing up like this. You don't have to message in advance or rent it out or anything. You can just hang out and show up. That being said, I love to talk to my readers. I've talked to hundreds of people who've read my book. And this one woman, her name is Gina. She lived in New Jersey. She said, look, I present myself online as this super successful entrepreneur. But the reality is, is right now I'm between houses, and I'm in like a two bedroom apartment. And it's like not exactly how I want to present myself to this network. So I don't want to host it at home. Yeah. And I'm not going to host it at home. And I talked to her a little bit about this, and we talked some more, and we learned what some of her limiting beliefs were. And afterwards, she did host it at home, and she said, you were absolutely right. Nobody came into my house and said, oh, this house is so small, this, that, or the other. She said, they actually respected me more for being a leader, for gathering people, for inviting them into the home. And now she's built this incredible network of other female entrepreneurs. She gets recognized when she goes to the grocery store, and that's because she had the courage to host at home, which you'd actually be shocked at how little it matters, the size, the location, things like that. I hear that a lot, by the way. Oh, I live 45 minutes away. I don't know if anybody would come. Mm. i You will be shocked at how much people want to gather right now. They are very receptive to these gathering, friendly invitations.
1: Yeah. So, y- you just mentioned limiting beliefs, And, you know, I have an irrational fear. Whenever I host a party, I'm sitting there watching the clock thinking, oh my God, no one's going to come. I'm going to be sitting here like a loser with my party hat on. Do you come across that a lot?
0: It is the number one fear of a new Mm. host is that nobody will show up. Or even worse than that, that only like three people will show up. And then it's like terribly awkward, right? Because if nobody shows up, you'd be like, oh, it was amazing. (laughs) You could lie about it. But if three people, then you're like, oh, dang it. Yeah, yeah. So I hear that a lot. And it's why so much of my work and my book is about guaranteeing that you're going to do your party and people are going to show up. In fact, I, from hosting, I think we've helped 420 people so far host their first party ever. And of those 420, maybe three of them have had like not enough people show up. And by the way, that usually comes when you're inviting a bunch of couples because um. what I find is that say that you host a party, you're like, okay, he said 15, I'll do 14. That's seven couples. The thing is, if two of the couples cancel, it's not just one person doesn't come. If, if one of the couple can't come, then both of them won't come. And so now sh- she dropped from 14 all the way down to like 10. And the energy is so different at mm-hmm. 10 than at like 15. Generally, I tell people you want to have 15 to 22 people is the right number. But still, you were asking what if nobody shows up, right? And that's because a lot of people do this like spray and pray thing where they don't really collect RSVPs. Mm. Maybe you send out a WhatsApp or a Telegram, you're like, hey, I'm doing this at this time. But we know that by collecting RSVPs, by sending reminder messages, those are the things that you have to do to remove any ambiguity of who's actually going to show up.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. And in terms of so other limiting beliefs tied to networking, things like fear of networking, which I've always slightly had, shyness. Anything else that tends to to come up when you're speaking to people?
0: You know, a lot of people are like, "What are we gonna do at the party? Like, yeah, what happens? Like, what do we talk about? You know, like, okay, I have these people, but like, what happens?
1: Yeah, what? Um, some
0: other limiting beliefs are like, yeah, will people like it? Will they have a good time? Or one of the things is my party is all about two hours, and so they're like how can I kick people out? Like, can I actually get people to leave my house? That seems so rude. Yeah. And then the last one is that I also don't really let people do food at the party. You could do basic snacks. Mm -hmm. But so many people come from these cultures where they're like, what? I'm going to invite somebody to my home and not feed them. I can't imagine that. Like Mm. if they're coming to my house, I have to feed them dinner. So those are a lot of limiting beliefs I hear.
1: Yeah. And so uh, one thing, I love that you set an end time for your parties. I hate late nights. I was like, God, Nick, can you just organize my whole social life? So you normally suggest it's between six to eight or seven to nine?
0: Six to eight, seven to nine. It depends on where you live. You know, a guy read my book in Barcelona recently, and he was like, there's no way that I can do six to eight or seven to nine. I think he did his like nine to 11, just because the nature of his social group stays up much later. Mm. But what you're looking for is a two hour time block that makes it easy for people to come over. Yeah, And so whatever that is for you. When I was in New York, I did like seven to nine because things went a little bit later there. Now that I live in Austin, it's probably more 5.30 to 7.30, six to eight, something like that.
1: Yeah. We all have that sort of crazy drunk friend called Steve who won't leave. How do you actually get, <laughs> we all have a Steve. How do you get people to leave if they actually aren't leaving?
0: Steve's are my favorite By the way, (laughs) people drink so much less at these parties than you would think. We tend to drink at social events or sporting events or other things when it's loud, when we're bored, and when we really can't have engaging conversations. Mm. One of the biggest things I hear from people who read my book, they say, oh, I bought too much alcohol. Mm. They said, oh, hardly anybody even drank really. And maybe that's a sign of like the changing times. People are drinking less. It also could be the nature of hosting these on a Tuesday or Wednesday night, that it's not a crazy party environment. But for Steve, what I would do is Steve's most likely to buttonhole you at the end of the night and say, oh, Pippa, I haven't talked to you in forever. You've been so busy hosting. Come on, come (laughs) sit down, have a drink with me. Let's hang out. We got to catch up. Perfect time. All your friends are leaving. And in those moments, what I tell people, I say, oh, my God, you got to make Steve feel seen and you can't just brush them off. So what I would say is like, Steve, I haven't seen you in forever. I would love to catch up. I'm trying to stay like on my goals and my schedule. So I got to wrap up tonight. But can I call you tomorrow? And like, let's talk and let's plan a time when we can hang out. I would love please, 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 can I call you tomorrow? And so that's what I would say to a Steve. And that usually addresses that situation.
1: Mm, Okay. And, And that's one thing you just mentioned there. One thing we haven't touched on yet, the ideal days of the week is, is it Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday?
0: Now I'm like Tuesday, Wednesday, exactly. Yeah. I like Tuesday, Wednesdays. I think Tuesday, Wednesdays are the best. And here's why. Because I want you to guarantee that you have a full house when people come. And if you host on a Thursday, Friday, Saturday, especially as a new host, you're more likely to get people canceling because other stuff comes up. Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights, at least where I've lived, those are socially competitive nights. Mm-hmm, yes. People schedule other stuff there. And so you're more likely to get no shows, to get bumped or bounced. And so by hosting at Tuesday or Wednesday, they're a green level day. It's usually socially open. You're also going to make sure that you invite people at least one or two weeks in advance so that they can make the space, put it in their calendar. And then you send these series of three reminder messages to keep your event top of mind. And I know this may sound to your listeners like, oh my God, this is like so much... But when you do these little things, it will show that you take this seriously. And I promise you, people will actually respect you way more. And they'll thank you for ending the party like on time. Be like, oh my God, that was great. Thank you so much.
1: Do you literally, do you, do you turn the music down?
0: I do, I do. do. I turn the lights up. I turn the music <laughs> down. Okay. 15 minutes before, I make a little last call. Now, mm. I, as I host more, I've gotten a little more flexible of not exactly kicking everybody out right at two hours. But I will say something for those who need to go, and they love this so much. I'll say, hey, everybody, the party's scheduled to end. I want to thank you so much for coming. If you have to bounce immediately, thank you so much for coming. We'll hang out here and maybe have one last drink, but I'll start to wrap up in 15 more minutes. So I'll let people wind down. I'm not as boot them out. But what I'm trying to teach people through my book and my party method is that you may be operating on these limiting beliefs and hosting right now that are holding you back. And what I hear from people is they're like, oh, I love to host. I host all the time. And I ask, I'm like, oh, really? When did you host? Like, oh, last year is when <laughs> I host. I was like, well, why don't you host more often? They say, oh, it's so much work. I'm busy. It's hard to clean up. And so I've tried to really give like the minimum viable party. What's mm. the most basic gathering that you could do? To break through some of those limiting beliefs.
1: Do you set, Nick, do you set a budget for each event? Because it feels like this could get quite expensive.
0: I think uh, you can host an event like this for under a hundred US dollars. And the supplies that you need are very limited. We don't do any decorations. We don't serve dinner. You need a basic amount of drinks for like a do-it-yourself self-serve bar. Mm-hmm. And that may be a little bit of upfront cost to buy some bottles of bourbon or whatever you and your friends might enjoy. But I've hosted events really where I've spent less than $30 on just some snacks and some seltzers and waters and a little bit of alcohol. You can do it. It's not expensive. Okay.
1: So I had some questions. They were kind of like quick fire questions for the perfect two hour cocktail party. We've actually, we've covered a lot of them. The two questions that we haven't really covered is what music should you play?
0: Um, I have a whole list of playlists that I like, but Mm. here's the general theory. You want to play music that is upbeat. You don't want to build a playlist ahead of time. Oh my God, please do not waste your time building a playlist ahead of time. Just play like the Beach Boys channel or something upbeat. There's a thing I'll include in my show notes, which is a couple playlists that have been built by some of my readers for hosting their parties. But in general, you don't want your music too loud. It's just to fill the space. You simply want the music to make your space come alive, have a little bit of background noise. But please, the purpose, the focus is the people and the conversations.
1: Yeah. And so you're calling this a cocktail party. What drinks do you serve?
0: You can call it a cocktail party, a happy hour. You call it a meetup, whatever you want to call it. But Mm. I found that a cocktail party is the easiest thing for people to understand that this is a lightweight social gathering where you'll meet a lot of new people and it's pretty low stakes, low commitment. What drinks do you serve? It's usually a self-serve bar. Now, some people who love drinks will pre-mix drinks, and they'll pre-batch stuff, and they'll serve that. But I'll oftentimes just have a self-serve bar. So I'll have things in cans, things that people can mix, some ice, some mixers. Most of my friends these days, though, they just drink like flavored water, I swear.
1: <laughs> okay, I'm so excited to host my first party. I'm building a guest list in my head as we speak. I'll let you
0: know. <laughs> That's the way to do it. Here's the reality. You should be going through your life collecting all the interesting people that you meet. Mm. And these events serve as a way for you to kind of add value to them and to touch base. Yeah, Many of us go through life and we meet somebody interesting at a party or the grocery or a yoga class or something. And then what? Mm. Like, so what? Like when you just hope maybe you'll bump into them again? What if instead you said, hey, every couple months I host a little happy hour with all the interesting people I meet in town? can I send you the info? I think I've asked that question to thousands of people and I've maybe heard no like twice.
1: Oh, wow. Okay. So the fear of rejection, people should get over that because people love to be invited.
0: Exactly. Everybody wants to be invited to a party. And note that what you're asking is, can I send you the info? Not do you want to come over to my house exactly at this time, right? You're saying, oh, can I send you the info? Mm -hmm. And then you'll build the RSVP to make the event look inviting and fun and like there's going to be other people there.
1: Okay, Nick. So we've discussed some sort of self-doubt and limiting beliefs in regard to some of the things you've done already. Do you have any stories you can share? Any other things that we haven't touched on about your self-doubt and limiting beliefs?
0: I'm hosting an event on Thursday, that's going to be a six hour event during the daytime. So I'm hosting Mm. six hours from 11am to 5pm. And then the next day or the next week, I'm hosting a two day event. That'll be what that first one is like eight hours, the first day, the next day 12 hours. So that'll be 20 hours. So one self doubt that I have is, you know, from the guy who knows everything about a two hour event, will I be able to host a 20 hour event? Mm. And, I'm pretty nervous about that. I mean, I'm ex- I'm excited. I'm very excited. But for me, that's that's kind of where my growth is these days.
1: Mm. Any other things you wanted to bring up here?
0: I think the first time that I started to share social media videos, you know, they felt so cringy. Mm. And I just remember not wanting to do it. I was like, oh, I don't know about this. And working through that eventually, it just, it, it takes time. It's just reps. You got to get in the reps.
1: Mm, that's kind of where I am now. I just feel like I look like such an idiot. <laughs>
0: everything you want is on the other side of cringe. This guy (laughs) said that to me once, and I love that quote.
1: So maybe one thing that we can discuss in this portion of the conversation is that one of the reasons you started hosting cocktail parties, what was interesting about you is that you, in your book, described yourself as being quite socially awkward. You would walk into a room full of strangers, and you found that really scary. Your heart would race, You'd, you'd stutter, and yet you still went on this journey to host all these amazing events?
0: Yes. What about it?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's a real sort of fear to get over. You were really facing your fear, right?
0: Yeah. I think that starting in my own home made me feel more comfortable. Starting by inviting my friends made me feel more comfortable. I mean, the first event I ever hosted in New York was for my birthday. And I hosted it in like a Saturday afternoon or something. And I started with that idea of a core group, right? Having people there that I felt comfortable with. By the way, if anybody's hosting something for your birthday, I am so red-pilled that you can only host your birthday on the actual day of your birthday. I think that people who host their birthday parties on their non-actual birthday, that that is such a faker move. You have to do it on your actual birthday. That's the move.
1: (laughs) Okay, noted, noted. Okay, Nick, I'm, I'm asking everyone the same wrap-up question, and that is, can you nominate or suggest someone to come on this podcast? Either someone with an amazing growth story, or it could also be someone aspirational who you'd love to see on this podcast.
0: There's a guy whose name is Paul Millard. He wrote a book. He's it's very popular. His book is like blowing up right now. And he is just talking about our relationship to work. And how we think about work and our time spent on work. And he's somebody who's a self-published author and his book has sold more copies than anybody I've ever, ever heard who's self-published. And he has such a loyal following and the reviews are insane. I think it's like 1500 reviews and people are like this book changed my life. So I think he's interesting to think about from the angle of consulting, or those that are thinking about starting or selling a business.
1: Mm, awesome. Okay, I I will look him up. That's great. Okay, Nick, this has been so much fun to speak to you. I'm genuinely, I'm really excited, and as I say, already planning my guest list for my for my cocktail party. So I'll let you know when I host it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Tiger Therapy. You made it to the end, which makes me so happy. I really hope you got something from this conversation. It would mean so much to me if you could subscribe to Tiger Therapy on whichever podcast platform you're listening on. The more subscribers we get, the more people will find us, and then the bigger and better guests we'll be able to have on. A big thank you to everyone who made this episode possible, including our brilliant guest and, of course, the team
0: at Tiger Hall.